Welcome to the Pogel Podcast. The Pogel Podcast is a new conversation from the Pogel Project that celebrates innovative educators both in and out of the classroom. You will hear what inspired them to become teachers and how the practice of student-centered education transformed their classrooms and improved outcomes for their students. Learn how they're innovating outside of the classroom as well. Join us as we think out loud with Pogel educators, researchers, and others working to transform teaching and learning for the 21st century. Our guest today is Dr. Mark McDaniel. Mark McDaniel is a professor of psychological and brain sciences at Washington University in St. Louis and the director of the Center for Integrative Research in Cognition, Learning, and Education, otherwise known as CIRCLE. He received his PhD from the University of Colorado in 1980. His research is in the general area of human learning and memory with an emphasis on prospective memory, encoding and retrieval processes in episodic memory, and applications to educational contexts. His research has been sponsored by the Institute of Educational Sciences, the James S. McDonald Foundation, the National Institutes of Health, the National Science Foundation, and NASA. McDaniel has served as Associate Editor of the Journal of Experimental Psychology, Learning, Memory, and Cognition. He has written numerous scholarly articles and is the co-author with Peter Brown and Henry Rodiger of the recent book, Make It Stick, The Science of Successful Learning, which was published by Harvard University Press in 2014. Mark and Alex, thank you very much for being here. And Alex, I will pass the baton over to you. Today, I'm interviewing Mark McDaniel. He's a professor at Washington University uh, in St. Louis. Uh, Mark, your field broadly is in the area of psychology, and so we're going to get to some of the connections between what you've studied and the Pogel Project in a minute, but I wanted to ask uh, some questions about your background first. Um, can you tell me a little bit about what your position is at WashU? Sure. I'm a, a faculty member, professor of psychological and brain sciences, and WashU is an R01, an R01 university, which means it's, it's got a lot of emphasis on research. So I do a, a lot of research on how humans learn and remember and think and, and represent concepts, basically cognitive psychology, that's my area. And I, I started out 40 years ago, over 40 years ago, mainly conducting experiments in laboratory settings. But I was always interested in education and I generally, worked to include authentic materials in my laboratory experiments. Unlike many memory researchers who are maybe still using word lists or paired associate lists, I was using texts and having students learn concepts and things like that. But, but then uh, I've, I've transitioned some, almost totally now, to conducting research in classrooms. And I'm doing that in order to evaluate whether the principles that we've extracted from our laboratory research extend fruitfully to classroom learning and the classroom context. And Alex, as you're probably aware, the classroom is a lot more variable than our psychology lab. In a exactly. lab, yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so we can control many variables in the lab. Those variables are uncontrolled in the classroom, how much students study how much they're paying attention, whether they're sleeping in class, although they don't <laughs> sleep in poll classes, right. I've observed. And, well, and, and so most the of question them is, yeah. 
So the question is, do these principles extend to this, you might say, hairier or wilder context of the classroom? And right. we're finding that some of the things I'll talk about today do extend to the classroom, which is exciting in terms of thinking about how to improve pedagogy and may have some bearing on Ogle as well. So, so what drew you to psychology in the first place and then, you know, narrowing down to cognitive psychology and as you say now, looking more at what's going on in classrooms? I mean, can you, can you follow a, a pathway or was this something that's just always jazzed you or? Well, I've always been interested in um, the, really the beauty of experiments where you try to control every variable except the factor or the variable that you think may have some consequence, in this case, on learning and memory. And my dad used to like to tell the story of how even when I was in seventh or eighth grade, I would build mazes with blocks and have little pet rats try to find <laughs> their way to the end and give them a reward. I don't remember oh, so that so well. That could be apocryphal. I'm not so sure about right. that. But so you were doing college-level experiments when you were, you know, a, a younger kid. Okay. That's awfully generous, Alex. I don't think they were college-level. But, um, <laughs> but I, I have always had an interest in learning and memory. I like to learn, and, uh, and so uh, I've just been interested in that process. In college, I got very interested in the neuroscience of memory. I, I had an option to pursue that in graduate school, but I went the cognitive route instead. So I've always had an abiding interest in that. I've had an interest in experimental work, and psychology is a place where you can do experimental work in many areas. In some, it's all got to be uh, only correlational, but one reason I like the cognitive part of it is because that really lends itself to experimental work. And then finally, I uh, took a course on statistics and research design in college. Uh, and that really, talking about getting jazzed, I was really jazzed about that. I got really jazzed about the idea that you, there's a formal technique by which one can take data that are always gonna be messy. They're always gonna be messy. And eyeballing them, you're not sure what to conclude. And statistics allows you a formal and fairly consistent and accurate method at making conclusions about what, what, what the research has shown you. And so I just fell in love with those techniques, those analytic techniques, and the fact that it, it helps you bring some uh, objectivity to uh, the research enterprise. So those right. are the things that got me interested in it, and I'm still excited about it. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it, you know, for those of us, I mean, I'm a chemist by training. We often look at you know, psychology is being a little bit more fuzzy. And I'm, I'm glad that you sort of, you know, give us, you know, the, the idea that, um, you know, psychology actually does have some, you know, meat to it in terms of numbers. And like you say, you, I mean, I, I have colleagues who talk about how this stats class is probably one of the most important things that you can learn both in psychology or in educational research, because as you say, the data is a lot hairier. So, um, okay. So I want to uh, go into some, some of the, the, the major works that you've done. And, and, you know, one of the things that, that I, you know, had heard about 
from from other people. And then uh, Rick was uh, reminding me of this was was the book that you were part of called Make It Stick. Uh, and so the the first thing I want to talk about is is the interesting nature of this book. Um, in that there were three authors, um, and there there's you, another uh, cognitive scientist who's who's in the team, and then the third author is a novelist, uh, not a scientist whatsoever. And so, um, you know, the book is written in sort of a narrative form with lots of little stories about how uh, people learn things. And, uh, you know, we can talk about some of the things that, that are in this book, uh, but, but what led you to, to, to write it in this form with, you know, somebody who's not even a, a cognitive scientist? I, I can't imagine writing a book on chemistry with, you know, somebody who's not a chemist. <laughs> well, that's a, that's a great question, and I've got a, a very clear answer for that. Mm -hmm. uh, the other, the non-novelist co-author, Roddy Rodiger, and I had been talking for a long time among, between ourselves and among our colleagues at various universities about how much the research literature was illuminating effective and productive ways to learn, and that these methods of learning were at odds with what students generally do on their own. And in fact, that learning, how to learn is not intuitive. Humans often select ways of learning that are very ineffective. And we, we'll get to that a little bit when we talk about Pogel versus lecture classes. I have some things to say about that. But at any rate, we thought that it would be very valuable for students and teachers and parents and all of us who are lifelong learners to communicate the, the fascinating things we've learned in the research arena to people who could apply this and use it. But we know, we knew full well that if we tried to write a book for the general public, as hard as we tried, it would be too boring and too dense and too sciencey. <laughs> and, and I can tell you from my own experience, that's exactly what would have happened because I, the first book I wrote was called uh, Successful Aging, something about successful aging. And uh, I had, I've done a lot of work on aging and memory, and my colleague and I really tried to put this in a, in, a, in a more conversational tone, and we thought we had. But when the book came out, it sold well to people who wanted to get a background in the science of aging and memory, who were maybe gerontologists, who were maybe teaching the students. But the general public, I think, found it too dense. So even though we had put a lot of work and sweat and love into the book, it didn't really go anywhere. So I knew for a fact I wasn't, that I wasn't cut out to write a book that the general public was <laughs> so, gonna pick up and say, I like reading this. So right. fortuitously, Roddy Rodiger's brother-in-law is the novelist who's the first oh, author okay. on Make It Stick. And we would, he would come to St. Louis and we would chat and have dinner and talk to him about all these things we were finding. And he said, this is fascinating. This is fascinating, tell me more. And eventually the idea was, let's write a book about this. And he would put it in a narrative form, weave it into these examples that he collected from sports coaches, uh, business leaders, industry trainers, uh, mm -hmm. pilots, 
Yeah. He, he interviewed all these people and he, he wove in the principles that we were trying to illustrate through the, through the experiences and the expertise of these people. And then in terms of the science behind it, the second author and I, Rodiger, would tell him, well, these were the experiments that were done to support these points. And so then uh, Peter Brown would uh, describe the experiments in a conversational tone. We would check it for accuracy. We would revise some. But it, I think it worked, Alex, right. in as much no, as I, I think the book is very, it's kind of conversational. You can pick it up and read a little bit and enjoy it. And I think the narrative itself helps make the point stick. So that's the story of it. And we, we wanted, Roddy and I wanted to write this book for a while, but not until we got Peter Brown, the novelist on board, did the thing really take shape. Right, and, and, I'll, and I'll say, you know, from having, having read the book after, after it was recommended to me probably the third or fourth time, um, it, is, it is very readable. It's something that you can, you know, pick up, put down, come back to. And I think the variety of stories in there um, really, you know, make some of these things stick. Like myself, I have a, a private pilot's license. So a lot of the stuff that was being discussed in that section of the book, I could connect to it. Um, some of the teaching things I could connect to it. And um, I found you're, you're absolutely right that being able to uh, deliver that really helped out the book. Um, so let's uh, talk a little bit about some of the things that are in there that um, connect to, say, a way uh, a Pogo classroom works. One of the things that was a take home for me was this notion that, and you mentioned this earlier, that people tend to choose uh, methods of learning that seem easy, hoping that that's going to work for them, and that, in fact, those tend to not be very successful strategies. So you can talk a little bit about that and um, in connection to what's in the book? Sure. So uh, just let's start generally with research that has provided learners with several different kinds of strategies for trying to learn some material. Let's say it's a, say it's a text passage. What researchers have found is that the strategies that students most easily implement are the ones that students think has have produced the best amount of learning. And conversely, the strategies that seem difficult and one strategy, so an easy strategy might be rereading. I'm gonna reread the text just to make sure I got everything. That's very easy because we're already familiar with the content. There's fluency in rereading that's at every level of processing. The word level, the syntax, syntactic level, the sentences, the gist, Fluency at every level, we know this from the research. So this fluency and familiarity gives a sense of ease. And those, those signals also suggest to the learner that I've really got this stuff. Familiarity and fluency are misleading to all of us and leading us to believe we know it, we know it. So conversely, strategies like retrieval to learn, that is recalling and trying to recall what you've read instead of rereading and recall uh, cements things in memory and also lets you know what you don't know, that's difficult. Students don't like it very much. And that difficulty is associated from the student's point of view with not very much learning. So there's, 
there's this study after study has shown this that there's this illusion of learning with ease and then because of that students when they're asked to pick here's a new set of things to learn now what do you want to use of the things you tried here what do you want to use and they always pick the one well can't say always but <laughs> the, the findings are very clear that generally students are selecting the one that they rated as most easy and it's things like rereading which are not producing very effective learning so that's a real challenge say in selling a pogo classroom to some students right. is that you're stimulating them to struggle with trying to generate understanding of the material and the student interprets that struggle as a as a as an impediment to learning or as they're not learning as much as if the instructor just lectured to them. So, so what so, you're finding in Pogo is just a general, it's a general phenomenon of how students view learning and their enamorment with ease, the ease of the learning. Right. So I think what you're saying here is that generally when they come through a Pogo classroom, if they find it difficult, part of that difficulty is just because they are doing the important struggle of trying to really learn something rather than just having somebody tell them stuff. I mean, my own yeah. personal experience when I lecture or, you know, times when I've lectured and then students go back and try to translate that into, you know, doing chemistry problems, um, they have difficulty and they say, well, I understood everything you said in class. And, you know, my notes, you know, I understand what my notes say, but I can't actually do the problem. So, I mean, is that, that sort of a similar thing to what you're talking about here? Is that right? It, it is. It is. Uh, it, part of it is, is that the student can say, I understand it. But at some level, they may not have penetrated to a really deep understanding. An understanding that allows them to build, if you will, a mental model of those concepts and how they relate and how they might be applied. So the idea is if you've really got deep understanding, you've got a good mental model of the system that you're trying to learn. And then that mental model is what allows you to solve problems. Those, those abstract. So if you have a mental model, let's say, I've used these materials of how the brake on a car works, you can start to fix a broken brake. That's, mm -hmm. that's what allows you to do it. A mental model, press the brake, the, the brake fluid does something and it closes the calipers. And if you have a mental model, you can start to diagnose and fix. If you don't have a mental model, if all you have is kind of a, a I don't know, a representation of the, of the lecture that somebody gave you, but you didn't really build a good mental model, what, you can't do anything with that except on an exam, maybe spit back some of the statements the instructor made. Right. So, so it's that developing of the mental model, which is the hard part. That's exactly right. And that takes work. And that's one thing we tried to make clear and make it stick. Learning takes work. It's work. Right. And students demand the opposite. Students want it to be easy. And can I just right. tell you about a little experiment that illustrates this point? It's really fascinating. So a researcher sure. took an instructor and had that instructor present on, on, on Zoom or on a video, a well-organized lecture and had some students listen to that lecture and rate how much they learn and then take a test on it. Another group of students, in another condition, the instructor was told, 
look disorganized and kind of be disorganized. So the instructor's kind of searching through notes, well, wait a minute, what was I going to say now? And the lecture's a little disorganized. And the students rate it as, and that was pretty disorganized, and that, that's pretty hard to follow. But then they learned as much or more than they did in the organized lecture. The point being that in the organized lecture, you're not, the students aren't working to build their own mental model. It feels like they understand it, but they haven't really constructed it for themselves. In the disorganized lecture, they have to start to do the work of for themselves constructing that understanding for their own mental models, and that's what leads to learning. But the students didn't like it, but that led to better learning. The problem with a good, well-organized lecture, part of it is, is sometimes it does seem as if you've got the full understanding when in fact you yourself haven't created that representation you need for yourself. And as you said, Alex, connecting it to what you already know, connecting it in ways that make sense for you. Right. That so was a pretty neat, that's a pretty cool experiment, isn't it? Yeah. Don't you think? Yeah, now I'm going to make all of my lectures disorganized. Exactly, and tell the students <laughs> and, and what, why you're doing that. Right. Um, so I want to uh, turn now to some work that you've done uh, with Gina Fry, who was at Wash U uh, mm -hmm. in your department. And Gina uh, has had some connections to the Pogel Project, so some people uh, who are listening might know her. Um, but you've done some work on, uh, I guess, a growth mindset intervention. Yes. Um, that seemed to actually have some pretty big impact, if I, if I read this correctly. So can you talk to us a little bit about uh, that work? Okay, well, for the listeners uh, who don't know about this, the growth mindset is a, it's basically a, a, a particular attribution that people can make about intelligence. And Carol Dweck suggested that some people make the attribution that uh, my intelligence and my abilities are connected, it can grow and they can get better as long as I do the kind of work I need to do uh, to challenge myself and, and to learn. The other attribution is my talents and my intelligence are fixed. And so it doesn't matter really, the, the implication is, it doesn't matter how much I work on this because I'm at a limit right now. I can't get any better. And I don't know if you've heard this with your students, Alex, but I hear this with students say, oh, I'm, I'm not a, Physics is, I, I'm not very good at physics. I, I don't have the talent for physics, or I don't have the talent for chemistry. Or, and most of these people come to psychology. Kind of, that's kind of a joke, but it's right. partly true. But <laughs> you've probably heard students say that. Yeah. So mm -hmm. the growth mindset intervention is designed to stimulate students, especially those who have this fixed mindset, to adopt the idea that I can learn and I can achieve but it's gonna take some work. It's gonna take some appropriate kind of learning habits. So in our study, we, and this is pretty typical, we have people read a passage on how the brain is, uh, is adaptable and it, it, can, it, can, uh, it can, synapses, can, new synapses can be formed and it's flexible and it, 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 can, learn, it, it can learn to do more and more expert type things. And uh, then, we have students write a little bit, they read this and then they're gonna take exam, their next exam and we have them write, well, how might this orientation impact how you're gonna study for the test? 
So students will say, well, I here's what we get. Students say, oh, I realize that it's not enough just to read the solutions to the problems, which in, in the chemistry classes here, students get the solutions to the problems, other practice problems. I better try to do the problem myself. I better try to push myself. And some students said, well, I, I just used to do the easy problems, and now I understand I need to try to do the difficult problems. I need to push and challenge my brain. That's the kind of response we got. <clears throat> For the control condition, and we think it's a pretty strong control, we give people an article on, these are absolutely uh, uh, well-regarded tips, what your lifestyle ought to be in, 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 uh, in college. You need to get enough sleep, you need to eat well, you need to get your exercise, maintain friendships, so kind of lifestyle habits, they're gonna help you be happy and do well in school. And then people write about how that might relate to what they're gonna do for the exam. And they'll say things like, I think three or four nights before the exam, I'm gonna to try to get my eight hours of sleep. I think I'm gonna make sure I'm not eating a lot of sweets and things like that before the exam. So they appropriately uh, uh, respond to the passage they've had. And then we have them reflect on this twice more during the semester. That was kind of a, most people just give the first intervention, we do it twice more. And what we found was that, you're right, there were big effects for underrepresented minorities in the class. So those who got the underrepresented minorities got the growth mindset, they eliminated the achievement gap that is found at least at WashU between underrepresented minorities and the, and the majority students. Usually the majority are doing better. It, uh, some of it is preparation, but even with uh, less preparation, these underrepresented minorities with the growth mindset are now digging in and, and doing the kinds of things that allow them to achieve well. And the control condition and underrepresented minorities showed that achievement gap with the, with the majority of students. Now, the, 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 the non-underrepresented minorities, the growth mindset had little or no effect for those, those students. So the, the effect was selective to the students who had more challenging backgrounds. And it turns out that that's, the, in meta-analyses, that's almost precisely what's found, that the growth mindset's especially useful for students in challenging situations who may have this, this inappropriate attribution that my skill level is not going to allow me to do well. And so this intervention that says, no, you can do well. It's going to take work. Everybody has to work to do well at this, and that's what it's going to take. Yeah, I mean, particularly for those of us uh, who teach first-generation college students, uh, yeah. you know, at, at my institution, uh, uh, there's a significant <laughs> population of those uh, students who just, they don't know what the expectations are of college. They sort of, many come in thinking, oh, it's just advanced high school. I just need to be able to do this. And then they very quickly realize, oh, I need to do something else. And, and they're not really sure how, but being able to provide some sort of scaffolding to sort of say, this is how you do things. You're, what you're saying is, is I think it's going to, help them get a little bit further along than, uh, you know, just sort of, again, trying the, you know, what they think is going to work. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think a second part of it is, is helping them avoid making the maladaptive attribution that, oh, I must not have the ability to do well here. You also want to try to 
get them off of that attribution onto another attribution. And the theory, Alex, is that then that motivates them to dig in and do the kinds of things they have to do. Uh, I want to talk about um, some other research that you did. Uh, and actually, I remember you gave a talk on this at a Pogel National meeting about uh, rote learners versus conceptual learners. Mm -hmm. um, can you talk a little bit more about that work and um, how that might connect to uh, uh, Pogel? I can. And, and I would like to mention that this was also my, the, the work we did in the chemistry classroom around this topic was also done in collaboration with Gina Fry who was, right. a, who was a, a, a major player on this. But first, let me briefly discuss the theory. So let me start first with the theory, and this is, this is what my work in the cognitive psychology lab. In cognition, in the area of concept learning and concept acquisition, there's a huge debate, Alex, and the debate is, when humans learn concepts, how do they represent those in their brain? And there are two primary views. One is that some, one view is that what we do is we simply learn all the examples connected with that concept. So in your chemistry class, the student might memorize all the problems that are associated with the concept of, I don't know, stoichiometry. I don't know what I'm talking about there, but whatever it is. And, <laughs> and um, that, is, that is their concept basically. And when they get to a new problem, they retrieve or the brain retrieves problems that are similar to this new problem, and they try to apply the same kind of approach as they did with the similar problem that they've already learned. The other view is that, no, no, that's not at all. That instead, humans take these examples and they extract the underlying commonality of these examples. They form an abstraction of what, that can give rise to all of these examples. And so I think that's what your idea is when you're trying to teach students, you're trying to get them to understand this underlying abstraction. And then when students see new problems, they apply that abstraction and adapt it to the problem at hand. So the, the fight has always been it's one or the other. And in my lab, what we started to see was that, <laughs> excuse me, some learners tend to want to rely on learning these examples and other learners tend to try to push to extract an abstraction or the underlying concept that relates all of these different problems together. Okay, so that's the theory. We, we, we were able to gather some pretty good evidence in laboratory tasks for this view. And, and the exciting thing was that we found that if on one problem, you tend to orient toward learning examples, we could call that rote learning, then on a very different kind of concept problem, the learner tends to do the same. And the learner who tries to reach for abstractions tends to do the same on very different laboratory problems. Okay, that's all a good. That's something the cognitive psychologists were interested in hearing about. From our uh, purposes today, the issue is, does that have anything to do with the classroom? So I talked to Gina Fry about this. We were, we were good colleagues and I said, here's what we're finding. She said, oh my, you've gotta be kidding me. She said, this maps on almost perfectly to what I find with my students. Some students, when I ask them how they say, they said, oh, I memorized the problems and that gets you pretty far. But she said, that doesn't help them on tests where we're giving what you might call far transfer problems that are pretty different on the surface from the problems that students learn in class. 
said other students, they seem to get it. They seem to get this underlying concept we're trying to teach, and they do pretty well on these harder test problems. And so she said, do you think that your orientation of exemplar learners and abstractors relates to what I'm saying? And I said, it sounds like it surely does. So the experiment we did was we had all of the intro chem students take my laboratory task, and, 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 and it reveals whether or not they were memorizing examples in the laboratory task or getting the underlying abstraction. And we found that that index in the laboratory task predicted how they were doing in chemistry classes, and the, such that the abstractors were performing a little bit better. And Alex, the neat thing was that difference between abstractors and you might call rote memorizers or exemplar learners widened as the chemistry classes got more advanced and and required the students to rely less on memorization and more on abstraction. Right. So in organic chemistry too, there was a huge gap in exam performance between the exemplar learners and the abstractors. In intro chemistry, there wasn't a huge gap. And Gina thinks that's because you can get very far in intro chemistry with remembering solutions to a lot of problems and then adapting those. Yeah. But what we, yeah, but we, <coughs> excuse me, but then, we looked at the Gen Chem exams and we had experts rate the test problems for whether they required generalization beyond what was learned in class or whether they were kind of retention of what was learned in class in terms of problems. Were the problems very similar to the problem solved in class or were they very different? And we found there now that the exemplar learners were worse than the abstractors are these generalization problems, but they were just the same as the learners on the retention problems. And that's really exciting because, well, what it says, first of all, is it can identify students a priori before they even sit down for your first lecture, Alex, you can identify the ones who are gonna tend to wanna try to memorize the problems and maybe miss the concept. Right. And secondly, it tells you that if you design your exam, so it's based mostly on retention, you'll never, You'll never be able to distinguish the students who've just memorized problems and those who have really fully understood the underlying concept. And so right. it also talks about designing tests if you're interested in, in determining which students have really grasped that underlying understanding that you need to worry about designing a test in a way that's going to distinguish between those students if you're interested in that. Yeah. So but then here, here's the next question that any educator is going to ask you, and that is, how can we encourage those students who are learners to become more of the abstractors? Well, Alex, there's a simple answer to that. You know the answer. Do Pogel instruction. <laughs> okay, so there was our paid advertisement in the middle of our podcast. Well, no, I mean, that, that, that is the answer, or... Gina right. thinks maybe peer-led team learning might help, uh, but for my money, but uh, well, now, Ali, and I have to say, we haven't done any experiments on this, so uh, mm -hmm. what I had said up to this point, we have good data on. What I'm about to say, we have no data on. And what I'm about to say is, I think what you have to do is you have to, you have to create a learning environment where the answer to the problem isn't as important as the process to attacking the problem. 
right. think you have to focus on the process. And I think that's what Povel does, uh, tries to do at any rate. So, right. Okay. Yeah. So, so again, more, more back to what was in Make It Stick, which yeah. was getting students to really tackle and, and work and, hard. And generate understanding, try to generate understanding rather than memorizing the content. Right. So, you know, one of the things, again, I want to go back to, to the book a little bit, but one of the things that I think um, sort of may help students a little bit more is, again, re rewarding them for essentially developing the new knowledge. So I think, you know, if, we're, if you're able to create small assessments that um, show, you know, that are basically after abstract learning, uh -huh. And, you know, the students who are figuring out how to do that and you're rewarding them early on in the class, uh -huh. then they start to see benefits early. Because, I mean, I think, you know, again, students choose the easy way out. I don't want to necessarily call it that, but they choose the, the easy methods like rereading, uh -huh. um, going over problems that they already know how to do because they exactly. view that as being beneficial. But they're not. But if you don't reward that in some way, I, I guess the thing is, is if you can somehow reward the abstract learning, you know, right. through assessment, et cetera, I think is, right. is probably going to be good. Alex, I agree with that, and I and I push the point a little bit more and say, I think you also have to scaffold, especially the exemplar learners, toward how to do that, because you can say, I want you to understand the concept. But if the learner feels they don't really know how to do that, that they will try to figure out a way to pass the course. And one way that students, what they know how to do is they know how to memorize information. Right. And that can carry them a pretty good way toward doing well in the course, in a lot of right. courses. So I think, I think, he, and, and here's the other thing I think, is that I believe that you and Gina and all the chemistry instructors listening to this and other STEM sciences, I believe that you're all trying to convey the underlying concept to the student. So I don't think that we're not doing that in the class. I just think that some learners have this tendency to want to push toward trying to represent what they've learned as a series of, of learned examples, memorized examples. So the, the lesson here is that you can believe that you're communicating the underlying abstractions and concepts, and you probably are. But what you have to realize is that doesn't mean that's what the student is representing. Right. And the students, and so I think what you have to do is, and, and Pogel does this, I think you have to design activities that are scaffolding the student toward instead of memorizing in terms of thinking about the process of the, of the concept. Pogel really is patterned after the learning cycle of explore, discover, and apply. And so these explorations in Pogo where you're looking at, I remember when Rick showed us the example of learning what a function is. You're given different examples and you're working with these examples. And so you're exploring and then you're scaffolded to discover something about what a function is and what it isn't. And then finally, you start to apply this concept to new problems. Well, that's really different from the, the traditional lecture where you first are given the definition of a function. Right. And okay, definite, boy, I better memorize that. 
right? right. That's what the student's right. thinking. And then after giving the definition, the instructor says, okay, now, well, let's practice that definition on some problems. Right. That's, that's different from the POVO experience and the learning cycle. The learning cycle is pushing students to think about how are these examples related? What do they allow you to do? And what don't they allow you to do? You're not really memorizing anything. You're, you're constructing and building an understanding. So you're, you're, kind of bypass, you're trying to bypass the student's initial preference to try to memorize these examples. You're not memorizing the examples. You're working with the examples to figure out right. how they're related and how they're different. I think you got to do that. I think that's what I like about Povel is it really orients the student through the process of constructing the concept for themselves rather than memorizing a definition and then doing some problems. Thank you. That really um, puts a lot of stuff into a concise uh, description. So I wonder, you know, are there any other things that uh, that we haven't talked about here, Mark, that, that, that you'd like to bring up? I would like to request from the listeners, if they're in a, any position at all, to think about a possible experiment where one could identify their, their learners right off the first week of class as exemplar learners or extractors, and then look to see how their pogal instruction might be influencing these two types of learners uh, through the course of the semester. Is it, are all the students faring well? Some students, I think, you know, Alex, probably feel a little more challenged and a little bit more uh, less happy with the Pogo experience. I would like to know, are these students who really are oriented tend to want to memorize to represent their concepts? So could you identify a priori with this index? Those students are going to be a little more uncomfortable with Pogo so that you could give them a, maybe a little bit more support. And then it would be great if there were a control group, a lecture class that did the same thing, looked at exemplar and abstract learners and see how that compared. See precisely how the exemplar learners compare in a lecture class versus a Pogel class. And that would really tell the tale of whether Pogel yeah. can push the example. That, those studies need to be done, but they need to be done in concert with people who are doing some Pogel instruction and interested in this issue. Right. Now, are there, are there tools, uh, measurement tools out there to sort of measure? We do. You know, we have a task. It's a hard task. It takes about 40 minutes, but it's the only one I know of that reliably indicates uh, students are going to try to memorize versus abstract. It's a challenging task. You have to give students a challenging task. If the, if the concept's obvious, everybody's going to get the concept. I'm not, that's, right. not saying that's not true. If it's too hard, the literature clearly shows people are going to memorize the examples right. because they can't figure out the abstraction. You need something that's in the middle and something that will take some work. Mm -hmm. But we do have that. We can we we do have that on the internet that when researchers ask, we allow them to uh, to access it, and then we even score the data so that we can uh, uh, evaluate whether each student's an exemplar learner or an abstractor. We've done some collaborations with, and some of the people may be listening, we've done some collaborations with people down in Georgia and in Utah and other places around the country, but not on this particular topic I just mentioned. But, but that, and that's something that people could find at your website at, at WashU? Yeah, or they'd have to contact you. They can't right. just access it. We, right. we give them, we give them uh, an identifications 
numbers that they can have the students log in to so that we mm -hmm. because people aren't going to know how to evaluate the data you have to look at transfer right. data and, and so we we don't think it's a good idea just to let everybody uh, do the task because then then you start to uh give away the task that right. if people know what the task is then it's not a then, <laughs> not then the you real have them learn it. yeah yeah right yes okay <laughs> Um, well, Mark, I really want to thank you because I've actually learned a bunch. Um, again, giving context to some of the things that, that I have learned over my years of attempting to teach students in, in chemistry and using Pogel. So, I, you know, I think that that's all I have for you today, unless there's anything else that you wanted to add to the conversation. Alex, I can't think of anything. I think, okay. uh, I think we've covered all the important points. Yeah. Um, so I want to th uh, thank Mark McDaniel for uh, joining me with the on the uh, Pogel podcast today. Mark, uh, this has been real great. Uh, as I said, I've, I've learned quite a bit and the conversation has been good. Thank you very much. Thank you, Alex. It's been very enjoyable and uh, good luck to all you Pogel practitioners. Thank you very much to all of you for listening to today's conversation on the Pogel podcast. Intro and outro music of our podcast is produced by Pogel practitioner Wayne Pearson. Please join us next time as we think out loud with Pogel educators, researchers, and others working to transform teaching and learning for the 21st century. <laughs>